The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Will Appleton with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for October 15th, 2022. Earlier this week, the House Select Committee to investigate January 6th held its ninth and presumably final hearing. In connection with the events of January 6th, the seditious conspiracy trial for multiple members of the far-right group The Oath Keepers is ongoing. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from 2021 in which Benjamin Wittes sat down with Jacob Scholes, former managing editor at Lawfare, to discuss the recent enforcement history of the seditious conspiracy statute and more. Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, March 24th, 2021. It's been a big week for the seditious conspiracy statute, which has long been on the books, quietly forbidding the violent interference with the lawful functions of the United States government. But on 60 Minutes this weekend, the former chief prosecutor supervising the January 6th investigation hinted not too subtly that the seditious conspiracy statute might come out of obscurity and enter into action. This has prompted a flurry of discussion of the statute, and we happen to have on Lawfare's staff a gentleman who has spent a fair bit of time researching the recent enforcement history of the law. That's Deputy Managing Editor Jacob Schultz, who has written a series of articles for Lawfare on recent deployments of the seditious conspiracy statute. One of them involves an attack on the Capitol, actually, back in the 1950s. One of them involves the blind cleric who tried to blow up the World Trade Center. That's the first attack on the World Trade Center. And one of them involves a weird bunch of guys in Michigan who called themselves the Hutari. I sat down with Jacob in the Virtual Jungle Studio to talk through the recent enforcement history of the seditious conspiracy law. There's a lot of good stories here. A lot of people have wanted to overthrow the government. It's the Lawfare Podcast, March 24th. Jacob Schultz on seditious conspiracy. So, Jacob, it's not usual that we do a Lawfare podcast episode in response to 60 Minutes, but that seems to be what we're going to do today. What happened on 60 Minutes this weekend? Yeah, so Michael Sherwin goes on 
60 minutes and he's he's talking with the interviewer and they talk a lot about the various charging techniques that are going to be used in response to the January 6th attack. And the interviewer asks him whether or not he anticipates, he calls them sedition charges. He means seditious conspiracy charges against some of the capital suspects. And Sherwin just responds to him sort of bluntly that yes, he believes the facts do support those charges. And he thinks that as we go forward, more facts will support it. So he said that, and that was at the time quite a big deal because he had previously made some suggestions that he was looking to pursue those charges, but had not said anything nearly as direct about the type of evidence that they have. All right. So let's play that exchange. I'm not a lawyer, but the way I read the sedition statute, it says that sedition occurs when anyone opposes by force the authority of the United States or by force hinders or delays the execution of any law of the United States. Seems like a very low bar, and I wonder why you're not charging that now. Okay, so I don't think it's a low bar, Scott, but I will tell you this. I personally believe the evidence is trending towards that and probably meets those elements. Do you anticipate sedition charges against some of these suspects? I believe the facts do support those charges. Uh, And I think that as we go forward, more facts will support that, Scott. This is going to be a long-term investigation. The Biden administration asked Michael Sherwin to stay through the transition. Now he plans to return to the Miami U.S. Attorney's Office. What do you want people to understand about this investigation? That we try to move quickly to ensure that there is trust in the rule of law. You are going to be charged based upon your conduct and your conduct only, not what you may have posted about uh, the election, not what you may have posted about different political views. The world looks to us for the rule of law and order and democracy, and that was shattered, I think, on that day. And we have to build ourselves up again. The only way to build ourselves up again is the equal application of the law to show the rule of law is going to treat these people fairly under the law. Jacob, you said that he had made similar noises earlier. What does that refer to? Yeah, so he had said in January, a few weeks after the attack, he had given a series of press conferences. And in one of those, he said that he'd organized a strike force whose only marching orders were to build these seditious conspiracy charges. So he doesn't say directly that they have the evidence there to do it, but he he made a, I would say, a relatively big show of having that be a part of this press conference in response to the attack and was very public that this was something that he wanted to do. So this is sort of new and sort of not. I guess it's an incremental advance, but it has garnered a lot of attention both from judges who are sitting on these cases and from the press. What has the response been? Yeah, so the, the judge in the case was was certainly not pleased. And the press, for their part, sort of have been very interested in, it's really spurred a lot of interest in this charge. So if you were to go back and look at the evening news segments on all the major networks, at least a bunch of them had to do with this charge and the statute and sort of focusing on what does it mean? Is it plausible? And all that stuff. And if you were to go on Twitter, you see a lot of people talking about seditious conspiracy. And, and one thing I think is is interesting to say about, you mentioned that it's an incremental thing. I, I guess the significance of it is in part that 
even over the summer, so the summer in response to the Black Lives Matter protests, acting attorney general Jeffrey Rosen had sort of mentioned passive support for the idea that maybe those people would be eligible for seditious conspiracy charges. So I think there was maybe a tendency when Sherwin first said this back in January to maybe just say, oh, okay, you know, it's it's not necessarily dissimilar in terms of the plausibility of it happening to what Rosen had said over the summer. But this, I think, to a lot of people is really an indication that you know, the evidence is there and perhaps it's it's going to progress in that direction. All right. So it's fair to say that seditious conspiracy is in. In what sense? I mean, it's kind of the, the it charge right now, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it's funny to see, I guess you could, if you look back to different stages and say the, the Mueller indictments and things like that, there gets to be this real fixation with certain statutes and certain charges. And I think this is really a moment in which there is a fixation on the seditious conspiracy charge. And I, I don't know why there's no, you know, scientific way to answer why that might be. But I, I do think that a lot of it has to do with the connotations of the charge more than anything. I think when you hear the word sedition, you think of something that feels sort of arcane, or maybe you just conflate it with treason, right? But it is a significant charge, but it, it it's certainly not treason. We happen to have had a discussion about seditious conspiracy and the possibility of charges in this on the podcast the other day, Alan Rosenstein usefully broke down the statute and talked about what its elements are and why it is attractive in the context of an attack on the Capitol, as we saw on January 6th. Let me actually read the relevant sentence. If two or more persons, and this is for those who are following along, is at 18 U.S.C. 2384, 2384. If two or more persons in any state or territory, and I'm going to skip some stuff, conspire to overthrow, put down, or to destroy by force the government of the United States, or to levy war against them, okay, so pretty serious conduct, or to oppose by force the authority thereof, or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States, or by force to seize, take, or possess any property of the United States shall be guilty of seditious conspiracy and subject to potentially 20 years. Okay? This is a seditious conspiracy statute. The tricky thing about it is that it basically covers two different types of conduct. It covers very, very serious conduct, conspiring to overthrow, put down, or destroy by force the government or the United States. And then it also covers, by its plain language, stuff that seems much less serious. right? to oppose by force the authority of, to prevent, hinder, delay any law, to take any property. And because this statute is at once so serious and so broadly and awkwardly written, it presents unique challenges towards anyone trying to use it. But in this episode, I wanted to talk with you because you've been doing a kind of historical research about the recent uses of this statute which is a little bit more developed. People think of it as this kind of moribund post-Civil War statute that's kind of sat around unused for a long time, but it's actually had some major cases in recent decades, one of which is oddly reminiscent of the January 6th attack. So why don't we start there with the other assault on the Capitol and the seditious conspiracy charges that resulted from that. 
Yeah, it's the it's the forgotten assault on the Capitol. So, in 1954, there were members, four members of a Puerto Rican nationalist group, and they were located in New York City, and they took the day train down to D.C. and burst into Congress and started shooting into into Congress, active session of Congress. And they shot five congressmen, didn't end up killing anyone, although one congressman had serious injuries that people said he never really recovered from. And so this was the same group that a few years earlier had tried to launch a rebellion in Puerto Rico. And then a few years after that, had tried to actually assassinate President Truman when he was staying across the street from the White House while the White House was being renovated. So this was a big, big public attack, and at the time was was a big deal. And the response from the Justice Department was, interestingly, in the Eastern District of New York, where these people were, were based, to charge the four attackers and 13 others who belonged to the same group with seditious conspiracy. So again, really striking parallel. People stormed the Capitol building, trying to promote their cause, and then the response from the Justice Department is to charge them with seditious conspiracy. The interesting thing in that case, which is maybe a bit different, I would imagine, from what would happen in the 2021 version, should that ever come to pass, is that the people who were charged in the 1954 case weren't just charged for the isolated incident and the planning around the incident of the storming of Congress. It was rather for a four-year, basically, conspiracy to commit violence against the United States. So there's a lot in there to, to include in an indictment, including right the armed uprising, trying to kill the president of the United States. And so at trial, they all get convicted. And then a bunch of them appeal to the Second Circuit, who is not impressed with the appeal. And we, we can talk about this later, but there's a bunch of interesting case law that comes out of that case. So what would you describe as the interesting Second Circuit case law that comes out of the Puerto Rican nationalist attack on the Capitol? Yeah, so th there's a few things. And, and part of what makes it interesting is that it shows up again in a later Second Circuit seditious conspiracy case. But on the one hand, the interesting thing is that it's a pretty broad definition of who can be counted as participating in the same conspiracy. So in this case, the people on trial, not all of them were based in the same place. It was different cells, one in Chicago, one in Puerto Rico, one in New York, all of whom belonged to the same nominal organization, but they weren't in the same place. And only four of them were actually the ones that stormed the Capitol, right? So this is the Second Circuit saying that a pretty wide geographically disparate group of people, a lot of whom didn't actually you know, do the shooting, can be counted in the same conspiracy. So that even includes someone in this case who's <laughs> referred to himself as the minister of propaganda who ran the party newspaper. So that's one part of it. And the other part of it is that in this case, and this is this comes up later in, in later Second Circuit jurisprudence, is that the Second Circuit affirms that the statute itself doesn't violate the First Amendment, right? So that the statute is not inherently unduly infringing on people's freedom of speech. So that's, you know, it, it, it's a relatively big deal in that I think, right, these types of cases necessarily sort of get into speechy territory. So it's interesting to see the Second Circuit weighing in on that side. And I assume the Second Circuit's logic there was that this statute requires, by its terms, that you do something by force, which is not protected by the First Amendment, and that the thing you are doing by force is attempting to 
interfere with the activities of the government or overthrow the government. And so it's not actually penalizing speech. It's penalizing the use of force to interfere with the government's authority. Is that is that the logic that the court used? Yeah, effectively, that's it. They they sort of they didn't really get into it in great detail. In that case, the the way that they did it was they they referenced a 1951 Supreme Court case called Dennis v. U.S., which was not actually for the seditious conspiracy statute, but it was for the Smith Act, which is another basically since defunct statute anti sedition law that was used a lot against members of the Communist Party in the 40s and 50s. So. In that case, where the Supreme Court came down is that the Smith Act was okay because it didn't target discussion, but instead it it targeted advocacy toward overthrow of the government, right? So it's, it's it's exactly what you say, right? There's a difference, at least in the mind of the Second Circuit and of the Supreme Court, and just mere discussion of ideas, right, versus things that are sort of targeted at plans of action and targeted at the government in particular. Okay. That is the seditious conspiracy case that sort of looks most like the attack on the Capitol because it, in fact, involves an attack on the Capitol. It literally looks like it. Yes. Yes. But it is not the most recent use of the statute, nor is it the one that will be most famous to most people. So, people who are of the 9 11 generation will remember the case of Omar Abdul Rahman, the blind sheikh who was responsible for sort of the spiritual guide of the first bombing of the World Trade Center in the early 90s. He was charged and convicted and spent the rest of his life in prison on the basis of a broad seditious conspiracy indictment. Tell us about that case. Yeah, that's right. So the blind sheikh and a bunch of other people, so again, not just him, get convicted for seditious conspiracy. And they too are are not happy and appeal to the Second Circuit. And the Second Circuit, the way that they deal with the the challenge, so the blind sheikh's main challenge or, or one of his big challenges to the conviction from the blind sheikh is that, again, that the the seditious conspiracy statute itself is infringing upon his First Amendment rights. And basically the way that the court deals with that, the Second Circuit deals with that, is they point to the the 1954 case and say no. And they they spell out very specifically that in order to be convicted under the seditious conspiracy statute, one must conspire to use force and not just advocate the use of force. And in the case of the blind sheikh, it's pretty clear that he passed that bar and that the the conviction is... uh, is legitimate. So, so for the for those listeners who don't remember the case, what was he accused of? What was the force he was accused of of plotting? Yeah, I mean, he was accused of trying to blow up the World Trade Center. So, not a subtle use of violence whatsoever. And if I remember right, there were other like weren't they planning a sort of reign of like to bomb the Holland Tunnel as well and sort of do a, I think they wanted to attack the UN. There were a whole series of events that that indictment incorporated, no? Yeah, that's right. I I think it it was, at least in the sense that it it wasn't just a targeted thing, they were sort of hoping that this would be the beginning of a wave of violence, very public, high-profile violence, some of which against important buildings like the UN. 
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime identity theft? stalking or even violence. I used to think this was silly. And then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023. And angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 
and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. All right, so those are the two super high-profile cases, but they're not the only ones. Uh, what are the other examples of, you know, seditious conspiracy in action now that it's having its 15 minutes? Yeah, it's real real 15 minutes of fame. So there's a bunch more, right? There, there's In the 80s, there's more Puerto Rican nationalists that get convicted under the statute. So there's a bunch of these Puerto Rican nationalist cases a few in the 80s, there's the 1954 one, and then in 1936, there's another one. So very clear pattern of the use of the statute against those groups. So there are those. And then in the late 80s, there are two other relatively high profile, one more than the other seditious conspiracy prosecution. So I'll start with the one that worked, So or sort of worked. So in the late 80s, there's this group of radical anarchists who did a bunch of bombings, 20 bombings across the country, and they get indicted by a, grand, a federal grand jury on seditious conspiracy charges. One of the defendants pleads guilty and gets sentenced to seven years in prison, which, as we'll go through things, is, is fairly significant in terms of the actual penalty that people end up getting for these things. And then his co-conspirators get acquitted at trial. So that middling success against this sort of anarchist group. And then Another very prominent failure comes, it's, it's called the Fort Smith trial. So this is also in the late 80s, there's a whole big group of white supremacists, including the former Grand Dragon of the Texas KKK, the Michigan KKK, and the leader of the Aryan Nation white supremacist group. So this is a you know relatively high profile white supremacist. So they 
get charged with seditious conspiracy, but the judge in that case is not having it. And nine of them get acquitted in, this is in February of 1988. So in that case, what was alleged by federal prosecutors was that these people had met and they had this meeting where they were all talking about how they were going to overthrow the government and start an all white nation in the Pacific Northwest. And basically the way that it goes at trial is the government really has a hard time of convincing convincing the judge that that what was going on at this meeting, which was basically just like a convening of white supremacists, was that these people were legitimately trying to plan and overthrow the government. And the judge is very circumspect of what's going on and, and just tosses the case out. And the way that this gets played, which I think is interesting and happens again later in a case that we'll talk about in a bit, is that it the dismissal gets played as this victory of freedom of speech. So it's, you know, this is a resounding verdict in favor of democratic freedom of speech is, is sort of the reaction from extremist quarters after the dismissal. And then in the 2000s, the other people who get charged with seditious conspiracy are, I think, lesser known. So it's two different quasi-Al-Qaeda convictions. So one of them was in 2003, a group of guys who were trying to go and fight with the Taliban and go fight with Al-Qaeda. So these were foreign fighters, U.S. citizens trying to go abroad. They were charged with seditious conspiracy and, and they just pled out and they ended up getting very, very short sentences. I think something on the order of 18 months. So this is not a super high profile thing that happened, but the Justice Department went for it, charged them and got the convictions. And then some listeners might remember later in the 2000s, the Southern District of Florida in, indicted a group called the Liberty City Seven. So this is a group from Liberty City, Florida. And it's sort of unclear what their precise ideological leanings are. They weren't really a jihadist group. They weren't really a radical Christian group. They're just sort of seven guys with fanatical beliefs. And what ended up happening was the FBI got in contact with them through an informant and the informant posing as an Al-Qaeda operative coaxes them to cough up these sort of weird, overly ambitious plans to bomb the Sears Tower. And then the Justice Department indicts them of seditious conspiracy. So it sounds like it is a charge that has been periodically used to charge people with grandiose plans for sort of overthrowing the government, but maybe who conduct actually successfully conduct no violence, although they try, or may conduct, you know, sort of one spectacular attack. Yeah, I think that's right. And the the blind shake and his followers, that's clearly very successful attack. You also note that it's definitely the most successful prosecution of these charges. And I think the the case that best exemplifies what you're talking about is that these charges tend to be most applied toward people who have these really crazy ideas of plots and things that they want to do is the most recent example of a seditious conspiracy prosecution. So in 2010, in the Eastern District of Michigan, there's a Christian nationalist militia group. This is a group of people who has very fanatical beliefs, and they believe that the apocalypse is coming, and they believe that there's going to be a war with the Antichrist, and that it, it's their duty to, to prepare for it. And they they have a very a website in which they discuss the evils of Judaism and, and things like that. So 
these are people with very, very fanatical ideas and so fanatical that they were sort of excluded even from the community of militia groups in Michigan. And eventually one of these militia groups gets very concerned with what these guys are up to, contacts the FBI, and the FBI ends up arresting nine of them and charging them with seditious conspiracy. And what were they, and f- first of all, what were they called? Who were they? And and But secondly, what was the... Like, what were they alleged to be seditioning in order to do? Yeah, right. So so they were called the Hutari, and I'm not certain that I'm pronouncing that word correctly, but there's there was a big debate at the time of the case between the FBI and the group whether that word actually means anything. So I think it's up to anyone's interpretation what it actually, the correct pronunciation is. So the allegation in the indictment was basically that there's one sort of general allegation, and then there's one very specific allegation of a plot. So the general allegation is that these people were looking to commit one very prominent act of violence, either against a police officer or against a police officer's family, something targeted against law enforcement, not federal law enforcement. So this would be state or local law enforcement. And then, at least in, according to the indictment, the hope is that that active violence will sort of trigger a response from from law enforcement and and gradually will drag in more and more forces of the government into sort of a a grand battle in which the Hutari will retreat and they will carry out a war that will escalate and will sort of precipitate big, big challenges for the government. So So they're they're kind of imagining a like, we'll kill a cop and then the police will respond and we'll end up kind of in a civil war with the government. Yeah, that, that's the allegation. And the, the most specific, so in the indictment, they sort of posit a bunch of different ways that this could end up going down. But the one that they, they stick on and, and seem most concerned about it is that the Hutari would ambush a police funeral. And at the police funeral, you know, that would be the the precipitating event for this chain of violence and that they would start from there and then and go onward. And one thing that's interesting, I'll, I'll note for listeners, there's actually an entire movie called Standoff at Sparrow Creek that basically borrows from the indictment that plot point. So big cultural resonance. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Much more mainstream militia group in that case, but yeah. So the Hutari don't get convicted, right? No. So the, the trial goes quite poorly for the government. So the main pieces of evidence for this alleged conspiracy are a series of recorded speeches that the leader of the group gives. Speeches is probably a generous word to describe what's going on, just sort of meanderings about what they're saying. And that it's this really crazy talk about killing police officers and how willing they'd be to, to kill a cop, to kill a cop's family, and on and on and on and on. And that's the, the central piece of evidence at trial. But at a certain point, the defense motions to get the case dismissed and the judge is more than eager to do so and writes an acquittal order in which she lambastes the government's decision to bring a seditious conspiracy charge and spells out all sorts of reasons why she thinks the charge was a bad fit in this case. So one of which being, this is a local police officer. It's far from clear that this is a broader conspiracy against the federal government. And she pulls from all sorts of circuit court level precedent to, to make her case in, in that regard and to make the case that this, not a conspiracy, not a seditious conspiracy, 
And she's also sort of in ways that are not really applicable beyond the history of this case. She's very upset with certain prosecutorial tactics that the government took, basically that they, in her version of events, they they had presented one theory of the case in the indictment. And basically when it, when it seemed like it wasn't going to work at trial, they, they moved away from it. And she was not pleased about that. And you leave the acquittal order really thinking that it, it perhaps was not the best decision to bring these charges in this case. It, it really does not work out well for the government and ends up being a fairly embarrassing defeat. So one pattern that I notice as you talk through these cases, which might be on my mind if I were a federal prosecutor thinking about January 6th, is that they seem to be most successful when they are not white guys. That is the prosecution of Puerto Rican nationalists, pretty successful under the statute. There are, you know, the blind shake case, you know, certainly uh, shows that it can be used successfully in Al-Qaeda related matters. But, you know, the grand dragon of the Texas KKK walks on seditious conspiracy. The Michigan militia types walk on seditious conspiracy. Do you look at this and say the N is too small here to make any conclusions like that or that this there's something about this statute that, you know, makes it a more effective instrument when you're not dealing with good old boys than when you are? Yeah, it's a it's a good question, and it's something that I was really struck by doing all this research. And I wrote a bit about it in the piece about the Hutari. I think there's there's a few different ways to look at it. So the first of which is that th- there are probably some internalized racial assumptions about who it is that tries to overthrow the government, right? So in the law's imagination, right, it's probably more plausible that it's a group of Al Qaeda sympathizers or a group of Puerto Rican nationalists, right? This sort of baked in racialized conception of who does these things. And in addition to that, there is certain practical reasons why this might be the case, right? So it is the case that it it's an easier charge to convince a jury is applicable when the people who are on trial are members of a group whose explicit purpose is to attack the US government, right? So it's not really a stretch to say that Al-Qaeda opposes by force the US government, right? We are literally at war with Al-Qaeda in abroad theaters. And there have been a series of of serious attacks. And the mission statement of the group effectively is that they're at war with the United States government, right? So it's not particularly hard to imagine why that's a good fit. So I think that's part of it. And and you could say a similar thing about a, a group of Puerto Rican nationalists who in their previous forays had tried to kill the president of the United States. So I do think there's there's certainly an aspect of this that is really rings all the alarm bells of a very racialized conception of who can do what. And in addition to that, there there are some practical things, I think, about the nature of the group that these people belong to. And also that, at least in the case of the Hutari, this is a group that was, you know, comically disorganized and ill-planned and ill-equipped to do any of these things. So the judge in that case really took the strong stance that when these guys are sort of passively talking and joking about killing police officers that they're not they're basically too dumb to to translate that into any concrete plans they don't know what they're doing and i think among 
the the white nationalist groups that have been and the the far right groups that have been tried under the statute that there's a little bit of that right with the grand dragon and and his his colleagues these guys are sort of just i I mean they they certainly have strong anti-government sentiment but it's not really ever clear if they make the leap from anti-government sentiment to actually planning attack whereas puerto rican nationalists had had actually you know, shot up the Capitol and the Al-Qaeda guys had actually blown up the World Trade Center. Yeah, exactly. Although the one caveat to that is that the the Liberty City case, so those guys, at least as far as I can tell, it's not really clear without the coaxing of the government whether they would have ever produced any sort of actual attack plan. And, it, and even whether the actual attack plan was like a conceivable thing that they could have done, right? Not that that necessarily matters. But again, there there are points in, in favor of either theory of why this, this is a pattern. But it's also a case that fled out. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So who knows? It's certainly, if I was the government, that would be a history that, that would be concerning to me. Just it, It's not really hard to see the similarities between the Hutari and to see the similarities between the guys who are on trial in Fort Smith and the people who are most likely to be up for seditious conspiracy charges in the January 6th context. It's true, although although the ones who, you know, if you, the Oath Keepers may be a little bit more like the Puerto Rican nationalists in that they actually right. managed to attack the Capitol, right? No, that's that's absolutely right. And one thing that you'll you'll notice if you start looking at the actual indictments for, for people like the Oath Keepers and people like the Proud Boys. So yesterday... There's a Proud Boys indictment that, that came out. And if you look at what the indictment says the object of the conspiracy was, it was to, quote, stop, delay, or hinder Congress's certification of the electoral vote. So, right, in these cases, you're really, really inching closer to what it's pretty hard to argue that that doesn't meet the threshold for seditious conspiracy. So I think you're absolutely right that in these cases, you're, you are dealing with people who have relatively significant command and control structures and organizational apparatuses in place that it would not be particularly hard to convince a jury that they were doing things beyond just, you know, joking or passively talking about committing violence. One last question. So at the end of this, do you come away with the sense that, you know, as the prosecutor said on 60 Minutes, we are kind of inching closer to the use of the seditious conspiracy statute? Or do you look at it and say, hey, you know, between regular old conspiracy and firearms charges and, you know, the the stuff that they are being accused of, there's no real need to use this statute. You can get lots of prison time by charging people with sort of less exotic instruments. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't, I don't have access to the type of evidence that Sherwin has access to. What I would say is that if the goal here is to get long prison sentences and to get likely convictions, this is not the charge to use, right? There's clearly lots of case law floating out there for any appellate level judge or anyone looking to to see why this might not be the right charge to use and that there there is a relatively stringent standard for it. And it's obviously a much more difficult charge to prove at trial than just a pedestrian, you know, firearms or, or trespassing charge. But the way I see it, if they were to do it, the point of it is less the practical thing of getting a longer prison sentence. And it's more 
it's the rhetorical point of doing it, right? It's it's the rhetorical point of putting these people, whoever, if anyone, ends up getting charged with this in this group, this rarefied era of people who were literally charged with plotting against the U.S. government, of conspiring against the government. And that the rhetorical force of that, and I think that that's part of why you know, we talked about earlier, this, this has been met, the 60 Minutes segment has been met with lots of murmuring. And I, I think part of that is just the people, whether or not they think about what the language of the statute is, that the connotation of the statute is, is really serious. And it's a real statement of condemnation about what is and isn't outside the bounds, right? So again, I don't really see any reason for, for purposes of getting longer sentences or for getting more likely convictions. This isn't, as far as I can tell, the way to do it, but right to send a rhetorical message about what went on and particularly what went on for people who had real hand in planning it, right? Like I don't, this is not the type of charge that I would personally expect to see for someone who just kind of appeared at the Capitol and didn't really have much role in, in planning things, although I guess you never know, but it's really a way of signaling out who has done something that's truly beyond the pale. And again, it's that sort of rhetorical thrust of the charge that at least historically w- would seem to me to be the most applicable use of it. We're going to leave it there. Jacob Schultz, thank you for joining us. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our audio engineer this episode is the most intrepid Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare Podcast, so share us on Facebook, pin us on Pinterest, upvote us on Reddit, tweet us, and for heaven's sake, leave us a rating or review wherever you found us. Our merch is available at thelawfarestore.com. The Lawfare Podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by the redoubtable Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.